This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Everywhere you look, it seems like there's talk of prioritizing self-care and wellness. What does mental health look like at the intersection of being black in America? Here at Reset, we're launching a month-long series of conversations focused on black mental health, where to begin, how to build community, and even finding the right therapist. Now, if you have thoughts on what we should address when it comes to the topic of black mental health, leave us a voicemail at 888-915-9945 or email reset at wbez.org. First, we're going to talk about how to get that conversation started in your household. So Dr. Inger Burnett Zeigler is here. She's an associate professor at Northwestern University's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Scientists and author of Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen, The Emotional Lives of Black Women. Welcome to Reset. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So I want to start out by learning a little bit about you, doctor. What has your journey been to becoming a mental health advocate? Yeah, so I actually started my study of psychology as an undergraduate at Cornell University, and I was already always quite interested in the human experience and more importantly, how people's backgrounds, how their environment um, contributed to their overall wellness. Um, And so continued into my graduate studies um, and then professionally um, with a specific interest in the wellness and mental health wellness of uh, those in the Black community and Black women specifically. Mm -hmm. So getting the conversation started, that can actually be an uncomfortable one in some families, doctor. And it's probably true for most people, but Talk about the kinds of unique challenges that Black people face when trying to just simply start the conversation on, like, I may not be well right now. You know, I think there's been a lot of conversation around uh, stigma, around mental health, uh, generally speaking, and particularly um, in the Black community. Um, However, I do think that that is changing. And one of the important ways, uh, important factors that's contributing to that change is confronting these conversations head on, confronting them without judgment, um, without shame, without stigma. And we do that just by checking in on our friends and family, asking them how they're doing, waiting for the response, sharing our concern with individuals. Um, In this way, we normalize the conversation. I think a lot of times when people avoid things, um, they're kind of adding to uh, the taboo around talking about it, but by creating space and receiving the response um, gently and without judgment, we allow these conversations to be held. I mean, before this became part of your professional journey, doctor, was it easy for you to talk about mental health or did you have challenges? It absolutely was not easy for me. I certainly can say that, um, you know, as a Black woman, you know, raised in a Black family from the South Side of Chicago, of course, I was susceptible to the same concerns around stigma, uh, fear of judgment that many other people face. Um, In my own life, I've had experiences uh, where there were periods of depression, periods of anxiety, and feeling a lot of, you know, fear and shame about telling my family about that, telling my friends about it, um, because of this perception of, you know, wanting to present myself as perfect and kind of the good one and having everything um, pulled together 
together. And so it certainly has been my own journey of confronting the same things that I study in my work, yeah. uh, these negative beliefs and barriers that people hold that can prevent them from coming forward. But as I've studied that 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 professionally, I've also been uh, uh, challenging myself to work through some of those same things in my personal life. Well, is there now a pressure for you to get it right in your own life just because this is what you do? I think what I would say there's less of a pressure, but one thing that I have really come to appreciate is that vulnerability really helps to create space and it draws people to you. And one thing that really resonated with me is how I felt seen and I felt heard by listening to other people that were courageous enough to tell their own stories. And I think by doing that, we heal ourselves and we heal other people that are going through things. And so that's something that I really try to practice is how I can be safely vulnerable and how that is not only helpful to me, but helpful to others as well. So you're involved in a, a Black women-led mental health movement. Tell us about those efforts. Yeah, so uh, those efforts are multidimensional. It's a part of the research that I do, as I mentioned, uh, my Research work is really focused on disparities in mental illness and treatment, particularly in the Black community. So really understanding the role of stigma, understanding the way the service, the mental health service system has gaps that do not adequately meet the mental health needs in the Black community and how we can better uh, create interventions to help meet those needs. I'm involved in that movement as a clinician, um, a part of the faculty practice at uh, Northwestern Medicine, mm -hmm. where the majority of those that on my caseload are Black women. Um, in my advocacy work through various organizations that I'm involved with, including Thresholds, um, where I'm on the board of directors, um, and then through my writing. And my writing is really um, a way that I want to speak to the masses and, and let people have accurate information about what mental health looks like, what treatment looks like, and most importantly, to let folks that are struggling know that, that they're not alone in their difficult experiences. Well, we've uh, spoken on the show before with Christopher Lamarck. He is the founder of the organization Coffee, Hip Hop and Mental Health here in Chicago. And when I talked to him, he, he told us that he realized, realized that he needed to go to therapy when he was in a coffee shop. Let's listen. And I just couldn't stop crying. And I knew it was because of all the years of trying to survive, like, like no mom, no dad and no uh no stability and being homeless and just being miserable. And I knew in this moment that I couldn't do it anymore by myself. I didn't have the answers anymore. And so that mental and emotional breakdown became my breakthrough because it led me to finally go to therapy to get some help. How often do you have patients that come to you in this state, doctor? I think more often than I would like. I think what uh, a common kind of pathway that I see among people is they come when they've reached a breaking point. Uh, most often people are not coming uh, preventative 
uh, in a preventative way. They're coming when they're in a period of crisis, and that might be relationship crisis. It might be because their symptoms are starting to get in the way of their home functioning or their work functioning, or someone in their family has said, you know, you're really hitting rock bottom, you have to get help. And so they're kind of being pushed into the door. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important that people kind of recognize what those early warning signs are so that they can get help before things are starting to really uh, become a, a crisis situation. Yeah, it really does feel, I'm even thinking of my own experiences and, and, and those around me, it feels like it's it's a last resort therapy. Absolutely. And some, you know, I think that some stigmatizing beliefs play a role in that. For example, a lot of people kind of start off believing that they can handle the problem on their own or that it'll go away on their own, on its own, or that mental health will not be effective or that mental health providers will not understand their experiences. And those types of statements are statements that come up in the literature time and time again as rationales people give for why they are reluctant to engage in treatment. But what it can actually do is delay the time that people initiate treatment and in that delay, the the problems mm-hmm. and the symptoms are getting worse. So what do you say to folks who are resistant, like when they say, oh, you won't understand what I'm going through? What's your response in those moments? You know, the relationship between a client or a patient and a therapist um, is is that is a relationship. It's one in which trust has to be built, rapport has to be built, a sense of safety has to be cultivated, um, and that takes time and it takes finding the right fit. Um, and so, what I say to people is to take that first step. A lot of the thoughts, the fear-based thoughts, the worries about what that experience is going to be like um, can prevent people from taking that first step. But take that first step, um, give it a chance, find somebody who potentially might be a good fit for you. Um, and that is a daunting process. I it certainly is. don't want to, I certainly don't want to uh, minimize that. Um, it can be a daunting process for a lot of reasons. One, just finding the right person. It takes but time. Insurance and, yeah. yeah, time, insurance, location, hours, all of those things kind of are added on to, to how burdensome that process could potentially be. Um, and so in addition to engaging in that, that process, I also encourage people to use um, other supports and resources that they may have uh, in their day-to-day life, not as an either-or, but a both-and. Mm-hmm. In the clip, Christopher mentions it a little bit, but can you just expand on why Black men face different challenges to to accessing or even just talking about mental health? Yeah, I think I think it's a, a lot of the same as as black women. I think that, you know, stigma certainly plays a role. Uh, the availability of providers, particularly for those who are looking for providers of color, whether it be black men or black women, we know that less than five percent of uh, licensed psychologists across the country are identified as black, um, whether it be finance. And then that culturally competent piece, you know, I talk to a lot of people who are have a preference for a race matched provider. um, And I understand that preference. But even if you're to consider stepping out of that preference, wanting someone who is culturally competent, who understands the specific needs that you're bringing to the table is also important. And we do know that there's even a lack of those providers. So, you know, is is multifaceted 
accepted it, those additional challenges that people in the Black community, particularly Black men, um, can face when uh, wanting to access mental health treatment. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we're talking about Black mental health with Dr. Inger Burnett Zeigler, Associate Professor at Northwestern University's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Remember that we want to hear from you. So if you also have thoughts on how we should cover this topic in the future, leave us a voicemail. We're going to talk about this for the next four weeks. So I'd love to hear your comments. Our voicemail number is 888-915-9945. Dr. Burnett Zeigler, I want to bring it back to the, the the heart of this conversation, and that is just to get the conversation started in the first place when it comes to to, to mental health. Can you talk more about the, the journey to finding that right therapist? What are the signs that someone's a good fit or that it's just not working? This is a bad fit. Yeah, so I think I, I would take it a step even before that and um, – how one can identify potential providers. So a couple of resources that I suggest that people start with is going to their primary care physician who can often refer um, mental health providers that they work with. Um, If you're employed, going to um, an employee uh, EAP program, which often may provide limited numbers of sessions for free. Um, And then there, of course, are uh, community mental health providers that can provide services on a sliding scale. Um, Once you meet with someone, you know, I suggest kind of entering into that conversation um, with openness, Mm -hmm. honesty, patience. um, And again, reminding ourselves, yourself that this is relationship building and that it can take time. Most importantly, I think, is feeling that it's a space where trust is there and that you feel safe. Yeah. Um, and I think that that a lot of times is what can make people particularly anxious and uncomfortable is not having that sense of safety around what's being shared, that it's going to be confidential, um, that their information is not going to be misused, that they won't be judged or looked at negatively. And that's a responsibility of both parties, of the person that's coming to therapy, as well as the provider to help to understand what that person is bringing and cultivate that space. And I think it's also important for folks to to realize, especially those who have not taken the step just yet, um, that, as you said, this is going to take some time and you will, you might not find that right fit and you might have to break up with a therapist, right? I, I had to do it last year and it was very difficult. I was worried about how it might go. I thought maybe it was me, but I had given it X number of sessions and I realized this was not working for me. And I knew that, again, as you just said, it's a it's a relationship thing. I eventually was able to do it and then definitely um, gone on to a therapist that I think works better for me. But there was this great feeling of guilt at first as though I was doing something wrong. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And there certainly are instances where the match is just not right. When I'm working with people, particularly when they've come to me for the first time, one thing that I like to do is to invite them to tell me how it's going. Um, I also uh, make it a practice to check in every couple of weeks, particularly in the beginning. That's great. Um, But I want them to have the space to say, oh, you know, we're really not getting to the things that are most important to me, or you said this to me and it it upset me or you made this interpretation and that didn't really feel right. I want them to have um, some authority and agency in the session 
um, to make sure that that I'm getting it right because right. I I want to hear their feedback and and yes. adjust accordingly. And often um, people don't feel safe or comfortable or know that it's even okay yeah. to say that uh, to the therapist. And so, you know, for anyone listening, I invite you to do that same thing with a therapist that you might be working with because, you know, they need that information to make it the most beneficial experience uh, for you as well. Mm-hmm. You know, therapy is the, the marquee ticket when it comes to mental health. You know, it's marketed as is the end all be all. But the reality <laughs> we know is it's a lot more complex. Some people just can't afford therapy. And for others, talk therapy just sometimes just isn't effective. I want to play another clip from Christopher Lamarck with Coffee, Hip Hop and Mental Health. Here's where he talks about that. I learned very quickly that it is impossible to normalize therapy without finding out why someone is being disrupted in their headspace. What are what are the things that are disrupting our mental health? You find out some people are mad and frustrated because their relationship history isn't working out, right? Um, they don't have a job. They don't have adequate food, which is why the coffee shop also pays for essentials and food items and trying to provide jobs because people can't go to church and listen to God every day if their house is in order. I mean, if their house is not in order, the same way they won't be able to sit in front of a therapist and listen or commit to it if you are in survivor mode. So what do you suggest, doctor, for someone maybe facing financial challenges on top of needing mental health support? Yeah, I think that um, Christopher makes a really important point around you know, attending to the entire environment and the role that the full environment plays in one's wellness uh, wellness pathway. You know, when we think about that, it's it's not just the individual, but how are their relationships? How is their home environment? How is their neighbor environment contributing to their current state of distress? And then when we think about the process of wellness, I think of therapy as just one tool in the toolbox to improve one's uh, wellness state at that particular time. There may also be medication. There may also be, you know, making sure to utilize their social support. It may be exercise and nutrition. And so, you know, I think we should look at mental health holistically, thinking about the role that that whole picture plays in distress and how that picture may be readjusted to more positively promote mental health. And so, you know, in addition to therapy, other resources might be the plethora of online resources that are available, you know, support groups or uh, cooking classes or other things like that, that you might not necessarily consider as, you know, mental health treatment per se, but they do create um, that they can be tools in the toolbox that promote um, a full picture of wellness. So on this show, we have been uh, talking about the change in weather and uh, seasonal affective disorder or SAD, right? What's your experience with addressing that in the Black community specifically? Yeah, you know, that comes up so often, particularly in Chicago, where our winters are long and Ooh, dark. They and, are something. <laughs> they, they, they're really tough. You know, I'm born and raised in Chicagoan, and I think uh, many of us are impacted by um you know, the change in sunlight and the inability to get outside as often as we would like. Um, I think that fewer people um, 
meet clinical diagnosis for seasonal affective disorder. It's, it's actually a pretty rare disorder. However, that's not to say that people surely are not impacted by the change of the weather um, and the change of the sunlight. Yeah. And so a lot of people this time of year are coming in, um, expressing that in addition to other stressors that can come up at the end of the year with holidays and the financial impact of holidays yeah. and, and the like. Can yeah. we use community or, or support networks to, to fight against these things like SAD, for instance? Absolutely. You know, I think that thinking about creative ways to utilize our community in the wintertime is really important, you know, and I think that's one of the positive outputs, in my opinion, of COVID is it really opened up the virtual space that we can continue to to use in these winter months to uh, build upon that community, whether it be, you know, um, uh, meeting with family over Zoom or uh, other other outlets such as that. Yeah. Well, I want to play one more clip of our previous conversation with Christopher Lamarck. And just a quick warning to, to listeners, he does mention a suicide attempt. I had a little hope because I knew I didn't want to die. I just wanted to quiet the noise. Can I stop all the thoughts and all the pain? Like, can I just find a way to cope? And I called some friends and uh, they were able to talk to me. But the most important thing, I was able to go into a studio as an artist, being a hip-hop artist, I was able to cry and write and perform and write this music. And so even before therapy, hip-hop was my first form of therapy, and mm-hmm. it really did save my life. So we want to remind our listeners that they can call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. That's available 24 hours a day in English and in Spanish. Doctor, I love hearing when Christopher speaks about how creative expression kind of became his first kind of therapy, right? He talks about hip hop. Uh, Why can being creative and and making something be so beneficial to to help people process what's going on? You know, I think creative spaces give people an outlet to express the distress that they feel challenged to otherwise express things that they may not not want to say to their friends and family or may not know how to say in the ways that others will be able to understand. It can serve as a release to kind of get those bottled up thoughts and feelings out there, and it can help people kind of let go in some sense. I think we're all creatives in some way, even if people don't necessarily identify themselves as such. And for those who may not identify themselves as a creative, you know, journaling is mm-hmm. another uh, wellness practice uh, that I really encourage uh, people to utilize for that same reason. What's your favorite way to take care of your own mental health? Uh, to rest. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I think rest cannot be um, underrated. We live in such a busy society that is really kind of promoting productivity where people feel like, their value and their worth is measured by their output, what they do, and that can contribute to stress and anxiety and depression. 
um, that can also contribute to us not giving enough time to taking care of ourselves, to monitoring our health, to doing the things that we need to do on yeah. a day-to-day basis to be well. And so one thing that I practice for myself and that I encourage not only to the people that I work with, but to my friends and family is how we can implement better boundaries, not only to rest, but to also do all of the things that we've talked about today, journal, cook, spend time with friends, whatever uh, the tool that you want to use in your toolbox is. So I like to have time to be still, to be quiet. Um, it might be taking a nap. It might be watching, you know, junk TV. Um, it might be just uh, journaling or, you know, engaging with something else that I enjoy. But being still and resting is my favorite wellness practice. Dr. Inger Burnett Zeigler is an associate professor at Northwestern University's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, also author of Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen, The Emotional Lives of Black Women. Thank you so much for joining us.